Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. So glad you've joined us. Way to go, way to get up, way to get moving. Awesome. If you've joined us online this morning, welcome to you. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for being with us. Um, I got a couple of questions recently. What is this series? You know, you're talking about heaven. Last week you talked about hell, and, and today I want to talk about science and your faith. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. I'm getting some things off of my chest. Occasionally, you know, it's all about you. Occasionally, it's all about God. Occasionally, it's all about the mission. Uh, right now, it's all about me. And so I'm just unloading some things that I've been wrestling with for a while. So thanks for listening in. Today, I want to invite you to think. Will you think with me? And if we think the thoughts of Christ, uh, we will be better for it. If you have your Bibles, uh, our text this morning is Colossians, New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul of the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 4, I want to read verses 2 to 6. And in my Bible, they put a little heading on there, it says further instructions. So just again, just some general advice. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. Thanks for doing that as you're able. So Paul writes to the church at Colossae and he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. May God just uh, give us this general advice and be encouraged. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Some of you know the name Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a 1970s guy, British journalist, author. He was a media personality. He was a soldier at one point, a spy at another point in his life. He lived an indulgent life. But in his later years, Malcolm Muggeridge became a follower of Jesus, and his worldview changed. And he was very insightful. In fact, you might even describe him as prophetic when he wrote these words back in the 1970s. He said, so the final conclusion would surely be that whereas other civilizations have been brought down by attacks of barbarians from without, ours had the unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions and then providing them with facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself, creating his own boredom out of his own affluence, his own vulnerability out of his own strength, his own impotence out of his own erotomania, himself blowing the trumpet that brought the walls of his own city tumbling down, and having convinced himself that he was too numerous, labored with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer." until at last, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he kneeled over a weary, battered old Brontosaurus and became extinct. Prophetic, indeed. On December the 10th, 1964, some of you are old enough to remember this, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. received the Nobel Prize for Peace, 
Dr. King was precisely articulate in the concepts he conveyed, and he was passionate about what he believed. In his acceptance speech among his many words, he said the following, and I quote, I accept this award today with an audacious faith in the future of all mankind. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. I refuse to accept the idea that man is mere flotsam and jetsam in the river of life, unable to influence the unfolding events which surround him. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of thermonuclear destruction. This last statement I want to put on the screen so you can see it. He said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Unarmed truth, unconditional love. Now, we know that science is the measure of our physical world. We have a physical world in which we live. We live in a physical body. We have five senses, and we interpret reality in our physical world through those senses. Science is the measurement of that physical world. And if our entire educational uh, motive or ethos or practice is built only on naturalism and a scientific single vision of ultimate reality, my question to you this morning is simply, how do we select which scientific discipline we use to interpret ultimate reality? And how will we identify in that scientific method unarmed truth? And unconditional love, the words of Dr. King. If you're a naturalist listening to the sound of my voice today, and you believe that all that exists is the physical world, uh, you believe that matter plus, plus time plus chance equals everything. Matter, you know, some dirt plus time plus chance equals everything. So that the world and its origins, we don't know how the first matter appeared. We don't have an explanation for that in scientific theory. We believe that simply something existed and given that something existed somehow, enough time and enough randomness, chance, that produces everything that exists in the physical world, including you and me. Francis Collins, who is a devout follower of Jesus Christ, is also a scientist who happens to lead the Human Genome Project and is the director of the National Institute of Health. We've heard a lot from the National Institute of Health in these last months because of COVID. And Dr. Collins will tell you that when you look at DNA, just a single strand of human DNA, it has a specific design. Now listen to this. There are 3.1 billion with a B, billion bits of information, all of which is coded with specific bits of information that makes the human body possible. In that is the implication of intelligence, of an informer, 
of an intelligent designer. 3.1, one strand of your DNA has encoded within it 3.1 billion pieces of information. <laughs> Scientific study, if we allow it into our worldview, can be our friend. Scientific study does not threaten unarmed truth or unconditional love unless it insists on being the only measurement by which we understand reality in the world in which we live. But scientific study then, if we allow it into our worldview, will lead us to consider that there is a non-physical world around us which is reflected not just by faith, you know, I, I believe in God and I believe that there's a spiritual world, but how do we, how do we measure that? How do we, how do we comprehend that? How do we believe that it exists? How can we can include it in the studies that we use of the physical world through science? Well, I think that the unseen world is reflected in all sorts of ways four of those ways I want you to consider to think about today. One is morality, a second is meaning, a third is hope, and a fourth is love. Morality, meaning, hope, and love. None of which, by the way, can be measured scientifically. Unarmed truth and unconditional love, these are philosophical principles, almost metaphysical other than the physical world. They're not given to us through the exacting nature of scientific principle. So truth, if we'll imagine it, is actually the most powerful force in the world. I mean, the truth is the truth. Something is true and something is untrue. So truth is a powerful force in the world. And I would submit to you that love is the most powerful practice in the world, most powerful ethos in the world. So truth is the most powerful force and love is the most powerful thing in the world. And neither of them can be measured scientifically. Philosopher Frederick Nietzsche lived from 1844 to 1900. Frederick Nietzsche, uh, uh, he was a preacher's kid. His dad was a pastor, Christian pastor. Both of his grandfathers were Christian pastors. And he was the first one, as a philosopher, to declare in the world the phrase, God is dead. God is dead. This is Nietzsche. God is dead, he declared. I'm sure his father and grandparents were just really proud of him. We have the rise of naturalism, na rationalism, actualism, materialism, scientific theory, as a result of Nietzsche's declaration, God is dead, which continues to push the values of faith and spirituality to the mar margins of our postmodern, post-Christian world. So I want to raise these four questions today. The first one is this, and it's on your outline. From where do we find our moral framework? Where do we find our moral law? Where's it come from? If actualism is in total control and materialism is all there is and there are no absolutes, there is no up, there is no down, there is no side from side, there is no uh, metaphysical world, there's, there's no supernatural world, there is no God, God's dead. We've, de we've declared God's dead and so we're behaving and practicing our world now, pushing the whole idea of God and moral truth, un unarmed truth and absolute love, pushing that to the margins that's no longer in play in our world today. Where does that leave us? 
There's no limit to the depravity of human behavior. I mean, we've discovered that over time. So if there is no God, there is no moral law, and, and there are no limits to human depravity, where does that leave us? G.K. Chesterton, a great Christian author, said there's only one angle that will permit you to stand. Only one angle that will permit you to stand. He said there are many angles from which you can fall. The danger is not that you will end up believing in nothing. Alas, it is much worse. You may end up believing in anything. So science then is given the question, from where does the moral law come? In today's world, of course, we're testing all the angles to see how close we can come without falling over. Most of you know the name Auschwitz, concentration camp instituted by the Nazis during World War II. 12,000 people were being exterminated every day in Auschwitz, 12,000 per day. Adolf Eichmann, who was the mastermind of the final solution and the Holocaust, said, the first time I saw people herded into the gas chambers, it was difficult to comprehend. Really? We soon learned we could kill dozens of people at one time with speed and efficiency, he wrote. And then he concluded, one death is a tragedy. One million deaths is a statistic. Adolf Hitler, you've perhaps heard that name in history. If you're a young person in the room, uh, hopefully you've been taught about the, the man Adolf Hitler. Maybe you've never heard of him. Was a proponent of Friedrich Nietzsche, the guy who first declared that God is dead. He loved Nietzsche. Just outside the ovens in Auschwitz were the words of Hitler, and I quote, I want to raise a generation of young people devoid of a conscience, imperial, relentless, and cruel. Contrast that if you travel to Nuremberg, Germany, some of you know that Nuremberg was the place where most of the post-war tribunals were held, where many war criminals were tried and sentenced. You might find it interesting to note that the, that place just above the tribunal in Nuremberg, as you enter that building, just above the entrance are the Ten Commandments. As you are leaving the building, just at the doorway on the other side, you will, you will see the Garden of Eden depicted there and the temptation written below it, you shall be as God's. We are at another crossroads in history. Will we let God be God? Or will we become the definers of what is good and evil? Who decides that? And this isn't to say that atheists or unbelievers are evil people. I'm merely reporting that once you remove absolutes and the existence of God, there's no good place to turn for absolutes or moral parameters. The fact is that science and rational thinking, no matter how precise and accurate, with all the facts in place, cannot lead you to moral reasoning. So where are we going to turn for moral value? If we don't get it from God, then we're left with the state to define the values. Moses gave us 630 laws, the Old Testament covenant. David reduced it to 15. Isaiah reduced it to 11. Jesus came along, walked the earth, and was asked, which is the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus said, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two hang all the laws and the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. That you and I are made in the image of God is a unique truth that the Judeo-Christian culture has given to the world. In the same chapter that Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He's also asked the same chapter, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You remember this? How wonderful it would have been if Jesus had answered that guy by saying, heck no, you don't have to pay your taxes. Woohoo! How, how good would that be? Awesome. <laughs> Instead, Jesus said, do you have a coin? Give it to me. He said, whose image on the coin? The man said, Caesar's. And Jesus concluded, we'll give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And the man walked away. The man should have asked a follow-up question. The follow-up question would be, what belongs to God? I know what belongs to Caesar, but what belongs to God? And Jesus, Jesus would have answered by saying, what image is on you? A life that moves horizontally without also moving vertically will be lacking in essential worth, a quality that all of us need. There, there is no eternal oughtness without a connection with God that confronts us. Here's what I know. I have no right to violate you personally. I have no right to violate your personal property. I have no right to invade your life because you're made in the image and likeness of God. What image is on you? It is God's image. You and I have been made in the image and likeness of God. Now, you can, you can summarize God's word with the Ten Commandments. And let me just summarize the Ten Commandments. Here's what they say. Your body is sacred. Your life is sacred. Your possessions are sacred. Your marriage is sacred. Your word is sacred. Your time is sacred. And so is your neighbor's. Body, your life, your possessions, your marriage, your word, your time are all sacred, and so is your neighbor's. In other words, you have no right, uh, no right to, to stand in the way of another person's choices. They're made in the image and likeness of God. That's their stuff. But remember, your choices always have consequences. It's God's greatest compliment to you that freedom to choose, to decide your own course in life, to de decide your own eternal destiny. You, have, you, are, you are a free moral agent. You, are, you have freedom to choose. And that's the only possible because you're made in his image and likeness. And that ultimately our bodies can literally become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So unless... We understand that life is sacred and free will is a sacred thing as evidenced by the Ten Commandments. Then we'll have no moral framework in the world, none whatsoever. Here's another question that we might ask science, which is from where do I find ultimate meaning in life? Where do I find meaning? There are many people in our culture and our world today who struggle with digital pornography. This is especially true uh, with young men, although growing numbers of women are also uh, becoming captured by it. Young men 18 to 24 years old are especially vulnerable. 
uh, looking at pornography is denuding another person, another person of value in exchange for a feeling. So I objectify another person, another human being, by looking at their physical body and therefore devalue them. The first cousin, and very few people are connecting these dots because no one wants to actually state the truth in today's culture today. Everybody wants to obfuscate the actual issues and problems going on around us. But, but right next door to this digital pornography challenge is this stalking, haunting fear of suicide. When you See, when you denude the other person, you diminish the value of another person, you effectively rob yourself of value and purpose and meaning. And the more that we devalue others in our culture by various means, the more we devalue ourselves, our meaning and our purpose. The logical consequence of that is self-destructive behaviors. So we have patterns of addiction and dysfunction in relationships and, and suicide, epidemic suicide. I read the obituaries every day. Frankly, I'm looking for people I know because it's very rarely a day that goes by that I don't know someone in the obituaries. And you will note, if you will pause to consider this category, that there are more and more obituaries in the last few years in the, in the Muncie paper of individuals less than 40 years old with no explanation of their death. A person less than 40 years old who does not die in a traffic accident more than likely has taken their own life. Those are the numbers. And it happens all the time in our community and every community in the country. Suicide is a massive problem in today's youth culture. And it is directly related to the lack of ultimate meaning and purpose. Meaning is found in, in a handful of components. Let me put these, these things on the, on the screen for you. I want you to think about this. Think about it. One is a sense of wonder. When you, that's the A there. And a, yeah, a sense of wonder. And, you know, when you read a, a child, a small child, a fairy story, a fairy tale, or they read it for themselves, and you see that sense of wonderment that they begin to experience, and they just find fantasy an amazing thing. And as children get older then, and they start to reach adolescence, they become aware that those stories of fantasy aren't real. And so as a result of that, they're now looking for that which is fantastically true because everyone needs a sense of wonder. Everyone needs a sense of wonder. And absent that sense of wonder, folks cannot understand meaning, ultimate meaning and purpose. And I just want to submit to you that knowing Jesus and being connected to his eternal, immutable, unchangeable kingdom and the effects of his spirit in people's lives and, and in the world in which we live is a wonderful thing. It is wonderful. Folks who run around looking for meaning, I say, look, just introduce yourself to Jesus and you'll find all the wonderment that you can imagine for a lifetime. This is where the adventure starts. This is where the excitement is. 
This is what makes life meaningful and purposeful. Being connected with something that God has begun and will never end. It's, it's amazing. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Another thing is the awareness of truth. Dr. King called it unarmed truth, just, just the straight truth. Not doctored up, not camouflaged, just right there. And Jesus said, I am the truth and the way and the life. There's where you find your meaning. The experience of love, everybody needs, everybody instinctively knows this. We all know that we want to love and be loved. It's, it's, it's like the top of the list for human meaning, to love and be loved. And a knowledge of security, which, which just is, is an is a atmosphere, it's a culture, it's, a, it's, a, it's an environment where I can feel safe enough to experience these relationships in a meaningful way. So the search for a moral law and the quest for meaning cannot be found in science. And, and the world in which we live can push God and push, and push absolutes as far to the margins as they can push them. And it's not going to change any of this. That's the search for morality and the search for meaning comes in those places. A woman for years fantasized about a wild, indulgent affair. She fantasized about it. And she finally took her last chance to do it, and she did. And she returned home only to be depressed that it hadn't delivered on its promise to fulfill. Now, let me summarize by saying this. Your loneliest moment will be when you have just experienced that which has promised ultimate fulfillment, and it doesn't satisfy. That's a lonely day. Now listen to your pastor. The meaning that Christ offers you is the meaning found in a personal relationship with him. I mean, where do you go to find the sacred thing? Where do you find the wonderful thing? Where do you find the purposeful thing? Where do you find ultimate significance and a sense of destiny? And it's a question of absolutes. Many people in our world reject the notion of absolutes. Many people in our world reject moral and spiritual absolutes, this intense individualism that drives itself away from any kind of unarmed truth and unconditional love. I'll remind you, in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary, they do this on an annual basis, they choose a word for the year. And in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary chose a new word for the vernacular post-truth. We now live in a post-truth world. And it's just become worse and worse, highly individualized, that there is no absolute truth, there's only my truth. There is no longer truth that is once and for all. There's only the truth that I acknowledge as an individual. It's crazy time. The truth of our Christian faith is actually built upon the foundation of the doctor, doctrine of revelation. Are you thinking with me? This means that we believe that God has revealed himself to us and that revelation comes to us through real words with precise meanings. But the ultimate revelation of God is not found in words, but in the word through a person, Jesus Christ 
He embodies the very presence of grace and truth. Jesus told his friends, he said, if you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Years later, the apostle Paul wrote to his young disciple Timothy, and he said that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And all scripture, he said, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. <laughs> See, when you start with the premise that everything is of pragmatic value and not essential value, you veer off into the distance with nothing remaining sacred anymore. If I have value only because I am functional and contributing to some kind of cause or purpose in the world, and that's the only reason I have value, then nothing becomes sacred because even human life then is disposable if we are not essentially valuable. Antonin Scalia passed away a few years ago. He was a longstanding justice on the United States Supreme Court. Many of his quotes have been offered about since his passing. I overheard one of his speeches when he said these words, and I quote, he said, sophisticated thinkers can believe in God. That's helpful. He said, sophisticated thinkers can believe in a personal God. Even more helpful. And then he added, sophisticated thinkers can believe in Jesus Christ, the very son of God. God bless him. See, meaning ultimately comes in finding the sacred. And when things become sacred, it gives your life meaning and purpose. When the proper things become sacred, you know where the boundaries are. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. You know where the moral boundaries are. And your life takes on meaning. You understand the moral law. So morality and meaning are in play. Here's the third thing that I mentioned we wanted to consider what about hope? What about hope? If life really ends at the moment your heart stops and your brain tissue dies, then please explain to me the reason for hope. If the physical world is all there is, explain to me the existence of, the meaning of, the purpose of hope. A leading sheikh in the Muslim world said recently, maybe it's time we stopped asking if Jesus really died on a cross and start asking why. Our greatest need isn't for another political leader. No. Our greatest need is not for the best kind of education. It is not. The greatest need for all of us is deep within our own hearts. Our greatest need is for a savior, someone outside of ourselves, to save us. Amen. When there is no moral law, there is no meaning in life, and there is no hope. None. And it leads us to this last idea, which is the supremacy of the practice of love. <laughs> Winston Churchill was once asked by a corporal, Mr. Churchill, have I ever talked to you about my grandchildren? And Churchill responded, no, and I want you to know how much I appreciate it. <laughs> now,
Now, after this little bit, you're going to go, ah. Uh. Are you ready? You're going to say, ah. Uh. You ready? The mother of a four-year-old was beside herself trying to find her car keys. She, she paused, pounding her forehead and said, I think I'm going to lose my mind. To which the four-year-old son walked over, took her by the hand, looked up into her eyes and said, please don't ever lose your heart because I'm in there. Now, here's my question. Where did that intuitive statement come from? How did that little four-year-old guy come up with that? Where'd that come from? What's that about? There are four Greek words. Greek is the language of the New Testament, original language. There are four words in the Greek language for love. Agape, which is God's love. Storge, protective love. Filio love, friendship love, and eros, romantic love. But it all hangs on agape, which is God's love. If you lose God's love, then you can't define the other three. There's no context for it. John 3.16 declares, for God so agaped the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me put this statement on the screen for us. The answers to life's most important questions are not hard to find, nor are they hard to agree to, but they can be very difficult to accept because it requires each one of us to change something about ourselves. Pontius Pilate, on the night of the trial of Jesus Christ had Jesus standing in front of him. Everyone on the scene that night thought that Jesus was standing in front of Pilate as his judge. It was just the opposite. Pilate was standing before his judge, as it turns out. Jesus finally concluded that, that truth was at stake in this conversation. And Pilate sarcastically, perhaps cynically, says, and what is truth? You remember this moment? And what is truth? And then Pilate walked away, not wanting to hear the answer. Because frankly, it would have been too much for him to bear. And this is why the truth is hard for many to bear in our world today. Because it requires of them too much of themselves. As I say again, Life's most important answers to the world's most important questions aren't that hard to find. I'm articulating them this morning. Nor are they hard to agree to. Jesus, what, he, what he's saying makes sense about meaning and morality and hope and love. But it's very difficult to accept because every one of us have all kinds of stuff in us that aren't unarmed truth and unconditional love. And in order to get to a meaningful faith and connection with the God who's provided these things to us, we have to make changes in our own lives. It's very difficult. C.S. Lewis said it this way, if you look for truth, you will find comfort. But if you look for comfort, you will get neither truth nor comfort, only soft soap to begin with and in the end despair. For the Muslim, the greatest truth 
in his worldview is the greatness of God. God is the greatest being in the universe. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. We've been acknowledging the 20th year anniversary of 9-11. And of course, in one of the planes on American Flight 11 that went into the North Tower, the first plane to crash into the World Trade Center, this is the last recorded words that the airplane back, black box recorded from that flight were these terrorists in the cockpit calling out, Allahu Akbar, God is great. God is great. God is great. For the Muslim, God is loving, but conditionally so. I must earn his love. For the Muslim, if God is loving, he must be supremely so because he is the greatest possible being. And so how would he express the greatest possible ethic, which is love in the greatest possible way? Because he is, Allah is the greatest possible being. So what is the greatest way to express love? Well, in the Muslim faith, there are two ways. One is in sending a book called the Quran so that there are plenty of rules that you have to follow. And the other is establishing those rules and regulations in one form of it. Sharia, Sharia law is, is prescribed, very strict, orderly rules. Because God is the greatest being in the universe and his love must be the greatest expression of love, therefore this is the best he can do. Send us a book and a bunch of rules. Now a book with some rules may be an act of love, but it's not the supreme expression of love. You know that and I know that. The greatest possible way to express the greatest possible ethic is through self-sacrifice. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. So if humans are able to express this supreme ethic of love, how much more should the greatest being in the universe express such love? And the conclusion that I want to make is that the historic cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb proves that God did express himself in the most loving way. Several years ago in Angola prison, Louisiana, it was historically the most violent prison in America. 6,000 prisoners there, 85% of whom are sentenced to life with no possibility of parole. The bloodiest prison in America. Blood on the ceilings, blood on the walls, blood on the floors. And just a handful of years ago, the state gave permission to a new warden who asked permission to change the culture. And with permission, all the weapons were confiscated. A Bible was placed in every cell. There's a chapel service every day. A Bible college has been opened in the prison. Inmate pastors are given sections of the prison. So everyone in the facility, all 6,000 inmates, have a pastor Angola prison, after those adjustments, within a few years, became one of the safest prisons in America. One of the young inmates who has now become a worship leader was asked about his life. He said, I thought I was free in my life before, but the things I did destroyed people's lives and destroyed my own life. Now inside prison bars, having found Jesus Christ, I have never been more free in my life. Please pray for my family. He said, they are outside and think they are free, and they're really not. Scores of inmates have found meaning and significance and purpose in life because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Did you know that we're planting churches in prisons? 
This is why. If you're within the sound of my voice today and you're a naturalist or hold to a scientific single vision of the world, you know, mass plus time plus chance equals everything, that's your worldview. Let me ask you today to consider that a great self-sacrificing God has given his life, the very life of his own son, in order to demonstrate his extreme, limitless love for you. And by accepting God into your own life, you will find not only the answers to your heart's deepest longing, but the answer to your mind's deepest questions. He is the way and the truth and the life. Are you looking for meaning? Are you looking for something sacred that is precious and valuable all the time? Are you looking for moral certainty, clear parameters? Are you reaching for hope? Unconditional love. Look no further. His name is Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that by accepting this gift of life that you offer into our own heart, that we can not only find the answers that we're looking for, but ultimate meaning. Friend, here's what I've discovered, and you can, you can take this for what it's worth. You know, I'm just, a, I'm just a Christian preacher guy. You can dismiss me in a half a second because you think this is what I'm supposed to say or this is what I'm paid to say. But this is what I believe. And I promise you, I would be sharing this message whether I was the pastor or not, whether I was paid or not, that outside of Jesus Christ, there are no answers to the haunting questions of your life your origin, the meaning of your life, the morality that, inf that informs your life, the destiny of your life. Outside of Jesus, there are no answers to those questions. And this is what I've observed, that if you reject God, your worldview becomes systematically incoherent. No morality, no meaning, no hope, no love. Here's the truth. God revealed in Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life will issue forth in a moral reference, an ultimate meaning, a present and eternal hope, and a fulfilling relationship of love with God and others. That's the invitation offered. I pray that you'll receive it today. Think about it. Think about these things and say yes to Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. And all the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?